0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. As Spence said, thanks so much for coming today and spending Christmas Eve with us, especially if you're a visitor, uh, maybe family or friends, or one of our neighbors. Oh, we're glad you guys uh, walked in today. And uh, We are going to uh, take a break from our regularly scheduled sermon series in 1 Samuel uh, to preach from Micah 5 today, which is an Old Testament minor prophet. Get there in a second. But Micah 5 has a Christmassy vibe to it, and yet at the same time, the subject matter really fits well with what we've been talking about in 1 Samuel. So it'll kind of be a nice extension of the last few weeks if you've been here for that. In fact, last week I mentioned that, that when we looked at David, King David's anointing in 1 Samuel 16 uh, and how God directed Samuel to go to Bethlehem, Uh, to find David, anoint him king there, in a lot of ways today's passage uh, fits beautifully uh, with that. It's a a prophecy about Bethlehem that would have occurred about 300 years later after David lived uh, about this small town of Bethlehem being this future place of kind of an uprising of salvation, you could say. How uh, a ruler would come through it and from it in a king in David's line and who would shepherd us and fight our battles and bring us peace. Uh, so it's one of the more common uh, messianic prophecies, actually, that, you, that we have in Old Testament scripture, at least more in a direct kind of a one-to-one way. There's so many we could look at, of course, but uh, one that gets uh, often referenced. So Some of you may have heard this, but um, we'll get to it in a second. But I'm um, calling this sermon, O oh, Little Podunk, Forgettable Town of Bethlehem, not because those added words make the Christmas song better, but because they further unpack why Bethlehem had to be little. In a lot of ways, the gospel itself is at stake because location and theology go together in the Bible all over the place. This is one of the principal places, I think, though, that we actually see at Christmas being such an important part of Christianity, the incarnation um, and so forth, but linked with Bethlehem being so tiny, so small, so forgettable. All right, let's read from Micah 5, 1 to 13. This is an abridged reading, so probably best to follow along on screen, but if you have it in front of you in a Bible, that's great as well. But verse 1. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass who do not wait for anyone or depend on any man. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities from your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. All right, so a little bit of context here. Uh, This is uh, basically what's going on at this part of Israel's history, and when the prophets were primarily speaking, is that it's Israel's captivity and their exile. So think of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We sing about this uh, at Christmas, and that song is, is one example. But The promises, though, that God kind of weaves into these judgments about impending exile and kind of uh, further expulsion from his presence because of their sin, the promises that God weaves in is not just a a straight reversal in a one-to-one way of those things. It's not just about a return to peace or stability or military victory for Israel or something like that but of something more personal and something more cosmic, something for the whole earth, as you may have just uh, heard in this reading. The whole earth, not just for, for Israel. So passages like this then are really helpful because they move us from seeing the problem as being out there with the Assyrians or some other physical problem to moving the problem in here, inside of us, with our sin, and that the solution is from God. And not from us. And so it takes a physical problem and moves us to a spiritual solution, which is textbook prophecy. By the way, all the prophets do this in some fashion. It speaks to Israel's history. It it kind of um, drapes all of the promises in in physical language that Israel may have already kind of experienced and are experiencing. But it changes the language into spiritual language. It makes it uh, more about uh, reconciliation with God, or for the whole earth, or something more spiritual and more eternal, rather than something temporary and and physical. And that's what we see here in Micah five. So it kind of be like, I'll pick something trivial here to make a point, uh, but it'd be like doing a puzzle and getting to the end of the puzzle and realizing you lost one piece, uh, which may or may not have happened to the Walker family recently. Um, but now, the the prophetic solution to that would not be so much. A time is coming when you will find your puzzle piece, but a time is coming when God will send his son to find you and to fix the unsolved puzzle in your heart. And it will come by way of God himself being that piece and a piece that had to be cut into and shaped and harmed so that we might be made whole and forgiven or something like that. And so with, with Micah 5, when we approach the New Testament, we see that Matthew picks up on this verse in um, Matthew 2, 4 to 6, and says this. One of the first things actually we see in the New Testament. When Herod had called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So a clear reference to Micah 5, 2. All right. So now the big question again today I want to ask, and at least partially answer, is why Bethlehem? And what else is going on in Micah 5 that further flushes out what we might call this Bethlehem theology? And how does it shape for us what not only Christmas would be about, but what the very heart of Christianity is? So that's the question, all right. Let's we'll start with this, the three things today. The, the first kind of pit stop here is... The idea that loneliness and weakness is a gospel motif. Loneliness and weakness, seeing that theme here in Micah 5, but elsewhere as well, uh, as a, a good news motif, a gospel motif, a, a central idea to what Christianity, not just Christmas, but Christianity is, is all about. So, by this I mean the relationship between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, which is the big, was the big city capital of the day, would be like the relationship between... Um, Waconia in Minneapolis, or Maple Plain, or Ham Lake. Help me out, what else? Um, I'm just, I'm trying to think of like um, small, maybe fourth ring, is that a thing? Is there a fourth ring suburb? I don't know. Uh, Exurb type towns, almost rural towns that even people who live in the Twin Cities their whole life might barely know about. Um, the, The fact that the Messiah and Savior would come from this kind of town sends all kinds of helpful signals to us about the gospel. And helps us to feel, I think in a good way, to feel the burn of unmet expectations when it comes to salvation. So uh, by that I mean Jesus being born in Bethlehem, even though an important town in one sense, because it was connected with David and God's promises to David about like, a seed or a descendant from him, who would give birth to the Messiah, who would be the Messiah and rule in his name, essentially, uh, but forever, perfectly. So in one sense, it was important, but in another sense, Bethlehem would have come with a, really, of all the towns? I mean, you know, we're all here in Jerusalem living our best life with all the big buildings, the Temple Mount perched high in a hill, all the good food and museums and theater and skyscrapers and river river walks and things like that. Like, did God maybe just fail to see all these great things about us? I mean, our city? So, you see this actually a bit more explicitly in the New, the New Testament where Jesus grew up. Um, he was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth, which was a small town in Galilee, to which many people scoffed and said, what good can come from Nazareth? Like, it was actually that was actually a question people asked. Like, it's such a... Such an outskirts town, or so much, so far away from like the central hub of uh, society and culture, that what good could actually come from there? It was kind of a slang, uh, derogatory thing. And so we know this was a thing in history, we know this was a thing in the Bible. Um, an important part of being confronted by how much God was going to associate not with the pinnacle of human ingenuity, but with things that stand opposed to that. In fact, you see it in verse 1 where it says, Marshal your troops, O city. It's almost like you see this prophetic kind of like command to the city. Try hard to keep the Assyrians out. Marshal your troops. Do enough. Be strong. Flex. And it doesn't work. And so speaking to the cities with all their power, all their weapons, all their walls, all their might, it doesn't work. This is kind of this, this common motif of Scripture is you aren't enough. Your abilities aren't strong enough. And then verse 2 swoops in with, oh, but Bethlehem, one will come from you who will be able to actually save. It's almost like verse 1 and verse 2 are an Old Testament, New Testament contrast, a law of grace contrast here. We'll come back to some of that. But again, the point here is not to say that God is against skyscrapers or cities. God loves Minneapolis. God loves St. Paul. Uh, it, it, the, the point is to say that... Um, God is against what they represent symbolically or theologically. Remember the Tower of the Babel story in Genesis 11? It's the same thing. Uh, People trying literally to ascend to God through erecting a skyscraper in the sky and patting themselves on the back in the process. And it says God had to come down to see it. It was so pathetic. And he frustrates them. He stops them from this self-promoting spirituality. um, and And he scatters them. The idea here is that smallness and grace go together. Smallness, weakness, and grace go together. And not just with a lowly manger in Bethlehem, but with the location of Jesus' death, also being specifically outside the city, as Hebrews 13 is careful to point out. Or apart from the Temple Mount, apart from law, apart from human striving, and big city self-sufficiency. So Bethlehem is the opposite of You've got this, pop psychology. Uh, you could say that Bethlehem is God's way of saying to us, like Jesus says in, in Mark 2, I came for the sick, not the healthy. Jesus came for the sick. He, he actually says, I didn't come for certain types of people, which might be a shocking thing to hear. I mean, in one sense, of course, he loves the world and came for all, but there is a type of person that he did not come for, and that's, that's the self-sufficiency of those who think they're healthy those who don't see their need for a medicine, for a cure, uh, for God himself to be their all in all and their everything. That leads us into this next section, which is uh, saved from what exactly Or, or from what now? Let me reread verses 10 and following. In that day declares the Lord, I'll destroy your horses, demolish your chariots. I'll destroy the cities of your land and tear down your strongholds. I'll destroy your witchcraft and you no longer cast spells. And I'll destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you, and you'll no longer bow down to the work of your hands. Okay, so interesting twist here. Again, it gets back to what I was saying before about the puzzle piece idea. We're moving from the problems out there to the problems in here. So what Micah helps us to see here is that the true Assyrian, the true problem is actually me. It's my heart, not just my sinful actions, but my heart. Uh, to again, to personalize that even further, we, we see in this in the first person, like, I am my greatest problem. Micah is saying, in that day, I'll destroy the things you've created, taken credit for, and trust in. And at first, that sounds like judgment, and it kind of is, but it's actually good news. It's a grace, because it means that he's saving us from the works of our hands and saving us from trust in ourselves. That's what we can expect this new era to be like. This is 700 years before Christ, but it's looking ahead and saying, this is what you can expect this new era to be like. Uh, someone is coming that will save you and unclench your fists from clinging to yourself and, to, and what you do. The good and the bad. Not just the bad, but the good. The thing, things that you thought were to your credit and you trusted in before God and others. Um, one is coming who will save you from that way of thinking and living. In regards to uh, witchcraft, uh, it's interesting this is uh, lumped in here um, with this. It's almost like this is a, a kind of a parallelistic thing where uh, a synonymous list here of different kinds of things. Walls, cities, you can see the, the mention of cities again. God will destroy cities. Not because he's against cities. It, this is saying I'll destroy um, the mentality that works save you. That's what that means. Uh, so witchcraft, walls idols. It's all kind of like lumped together. as a similar idea. And so um, what I like about witchcraft, it kind of reminded me of this story actually in the book of Acts. Maybe you've read this before about Simon the magician who was, was, was a guy who dabbled in dark magic. And he was an early convert, uh, or at least uh, almost. Uh, there's a story where Peter goes and preaches the gospel. The, uh, Philip's there too. And um, he, when he sees the early Christians preaching the gospel and sees that people are believing it, and they're, like, coming to life. He kind of perks up because he likes magic. And he's like, well, what is this new magic? And he wants it. He's amazed by it. He sees it as this uh, new thing he wants to add, kind of, to his magic arsenal. Um, but it actually does say he starts to believe it genuinely, too. And, and so that there's, there's that, which is interesting. But instead of truly receiving it, he's rebuked by Peter because he offered money And he asked for the gospel in order that he too might lay his hands on people that they would be saved. Which, at first, doesn't sound like the worst thing, but peeling back the layers, it is. Witchcraft is not just dark magic, though it is, and Christians outright reject it on the basis of that alone, but it's more than that. The true evil behind it is that witchcraft amplifies ourself. Uh, Witchcraft says, You are powerful and good rather than you are weak and needy. Uh, Witchcraft says, the gospel is about me getting all of this power rather than the gospel is just simply the good news of what God did for me. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so... Simon had to come to terms with this. It actually says at the end of this passage that he was rebuked by Peter and then he repents and we don't know the end of his story but probably actually believes truly at the end when he realizes that this gospel meets me in my weakness. It's not just a weapon to make my name more pronounced and powerful so I can do all these great things. Uh, It actually meets me on the floor um, with open hands and a closed mouth but a glad heart knowing God loves me as I am. But this again, though, is why Jesus would have to come and be born in such a lowly town and die apart from the witchcraft in our souls, apart from our best efforts, so that we wouldn't be inclined to blend the two. So we would truly bow down to the only one worthy of worship and no longer ourselves. Verse 7 is also helpful where it says, the remnant of Jacob, kind of speaking of, the church, uh, in a sense, ahead of time, Jew and Gentile, the remnants of Jacob, this people God is gathering for himself, will be like the dew of the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. So note that last phrase. Our very existence and salvation will not depend on any man, including us. It will depend on God himself. Uh, It's saying actually here, Saved ones are like the dew on the grass. So, interesting image. Like, think about going out in the fall, um, or actually even now, this warm December, we may be actually have dew out there, but think about going out in the fall and seeing dew on your car or on the grass. Is your first thought when you see the dew, look at all this dew that I've put everywhere. Look at what I've done to put this dew and drape my car and grass, but no one thinks that, right, because no one's done anything To put the do anywhere. It just appears. Uh, This is the exact same thing Jesus says in, in John 3 about the wind. The kingdom of God is like the wind. No one orchestrates the wind or works for it or draws God's attention by being a good person. It just blows where it wants. The do is the same. And so what this is saying is a time is coming when salvation would be just seen and appreciated on the basis of God doing it wholesale himself Not us in any way cooperating with him to to manufacture it. Just like the dew. It's a mystery why it's there at all. Like our salvation and like the wind blowing. No one can take credit. All we can do is praise God. And so we gladly move from casting spells to being cast upon by the greatest magic of all which is God's love for us in Jesus. How his blood covers our sin miraculously and truly makes us new, and gives us eternal life. This last section um, has to do with Easter. Christmas is just a pit stop, really, on the way to Easter. Let me read from verse 1 again. Marshal your troops, now city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. All right, so verse 2 gets most the fanfare in this chapter, and for good reason, but don't sleep on verse 1. Uh, before we read about this ruler and Savior being born in Bethlehem, we see that a ruler in Israel would be struck on the cheek. But a closer reading of these two together especially indicates, especially with the rest of Scripture in mind, indicates that these two people are actually one and the same. It's not two rulers, but one. The one who will be born to shepherd his people and save them will be the one who will be struck on the cheek. So that somehow, even foggily from this vantage point in history, we might understand that suffering will somehow be a part of God's plan of redemption. But not just anyone's suffering, his own suffering. Uh, John eighteen twenty-two. So this is actually Jesus' arrest, where it says, Jesus said, said these things to the ones who arrested him, to the officials and the chief priests, and one of them in that moment nearby struck him in the face. Actually, some translations say cheek. This is no coincidence. Micah 5.1 is about Jesus' sufferings. A coming ruler who would be struck for his people instead of them. And so the idea is that in association with bringing us home to God and away from exile and being saved is the striking of a ruler. The very one who would save us is the one who would be harmed in the process. And this is precisely the center of all Christian theology is the cross. Everything leads up to it. All prophecy. And it's a surprise. It's out of left field because... We wouldn't expect that God would be the one to shed his blood for us. And we know this. If, if we're Christians, we know this. We put all our eggs in this basket, but it's still a surprise sometimes to read these things and think that God is like this. He is the one who incurs the suffering. It's, it's really where all of this is headed. So that Christmas then is something that the promises go through. Bethlehem then is, you know, we have these promises of the Old Testament, these hopes, they go through Bethlehem to Easter, through Christmas to Easter, through a small town to a small little hill in the outskirts of the city where Jesus would die among criminals in a forgettable. Uh, it actually says the crowds walked by and wagged their heads in derision at how um, awful and disgusting and shameful it was. It was a very, in one sense, forgettable thing. But it's where all this is headed. Again, the backdrop of the prophets and of Christmas is that we're all in exile. Uh, If you you, um, read the Bible, um, it's hard to not come to that conclusion when you read about exile, because the Bible itself says this. Uh, But at some point you realize, oh, Israel's exile is actually just a picture of mine. And you come to terms with that, that I'm not where God is, that I've been expulsed from his presence. A lot of that's just self-directed, but like Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. It's been this constant mantra of humanity ever since. Um, And we're all in exile. And so when we sing about Israel's exile, we're actually singing about ours. And we've been cast out. But the good news is that not just that God will reverse that, but that the threats and the judgments and the small-townedness and even the exile itself would be incurred by God, not by us. So that the way we would be saved from our sins and the way we would be saved from our fruitless efforts to save ourselves and our fruitless efforts to stay saved would be by his son becoming podunk and his son becoming forgettable for us on a cross. That's the hope of the prophets. That's the hope of weak and weary sinners who have nothing in our hands to give to God, is that God would say, I'm not asking you to give me anything. I myself am incurring the debt. I'm I'm done giving you laws to keep to stay in covenant with me, and I'm going to replace that system with a brand new testament, a brand new covenant that will be dictated by one-way love, one way, always coming down to us, and always the greater love. So that any kind of love we give back to God is simply a smaller reciprocation of thanksgiving and of worship. But as the greater parent, he will always love us more. Always. And that's good. And that's actually why we, we, look at, we should look at prophecies like this, not just as, um, like I don't know if you guys have ever seen like a list of uh, prophecies in the Bible that uh, match up with Jesus. It's kind of an apologetic, you know, for the faith. Um, this is one of the ones you see, which is a good thing. Uh, there's so many. Uh, To legitimize the faith, to show how um, the Bible is a a trustworthy document, show Jesus is the promised one, all of that. Um, This is one of those things you see is, but when you see those lists, it's, it's kind of mechanical sometimes. It's like, well, the Bible says Bethlehem is important here, and then Jesus came from Bethlehem and you draw a line. Good, as we should, but there's no love in that. And so Love only comes through suffering. And that's why to dial it up, you know, and to see why this is so important, why he had to come from Bethlehem is not just to fulfill prophecy, it's to show his love for us. It's to legitimize and underscore and centralize his main mission, which is to die and to become small on the cross for you and me. Micah 5 is actually the epitome of a love letter in that regard. Bethlehem is not a quaint Christmas lesson about how we should value the small things in life and kind of go on our way, ship-shape, like it's a moral lesson to keep or something. Bethlehem is a signpost of divine suffering. Bethlehem shows us God's willingness to become small for us. Remember when the leper asked Jesus in Mark 1, Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. See, he is a willing savior, a willing walker of the path, a willing, I will be born in Podunk, Bethlehem, not in big city Jerusalem. He's a willing sufferer for us. So that his love then would finally unclench our fists from the works of our hands believing that we have to do, 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 do to be saved, and instead to believe we have to rest, 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 and receive, 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 and let our shoulders down in relief, knowing that God is the shepherd, the peace giver, the one who fights our battles, the one struck on the cheek, the one who makes do appear out of nowhere, just like our salvation appears out of nowhere. That is apart from our works, or apart from law, as Romans 3 says. He's the fulfiller of all of this, and not just for Israel, but for the ends of the world. And, and really, you could look at it that way, that the only way to truly embrace God is to have our hands open. We, we can't be holding on to ourselves, and our trophies, and our resumes, and our accolades we have to let them go. And that's what the cross does. But the promise of Micah 5 is a time is coming when you will not be saved by your works. A time is coming and it's almost here. And we're on this side of the cross. We look back. Micah looks ahead. A time is coming. It's coming through Bethlehem when you can let your shoulders down in relief and simply believe that God loves you just because he loves you. That's it. And receive him into your heart, uh, as John 1.12 says. Receive that good news um, with open arms and an open heart. Believing that his love came at the highest of cost to himself. And he'd do it again in a heartbeat.